Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. So, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast of A Different Kind of Walk. We are so glad to have you here with us today and excited to talk to an amazing author that I was just captivated by. And even though I struggled to read, uh, to see, um, I, I couldn't keep this book closed. It was so great. So Susan, if you want to take over and, and introduce Daniel and um, have him share a little bit about himself. Of course. So, yeah, we are very honored today to get to spend some time with Daniel Nairi, who is a writer, editor, publisher, and has had a hand in many of the children's books and activity books that line my shelves. Uh, but he has also written many things for adults. And his novel is what we're going to be discussing today, and it's called Everything Sad is Untrue, A True Story which is a telling of his own family having to flee persecution in Iran and becoming refugees living in the United States when he was a small child. So, Daniel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. (laughs) Right out of the gate, your name wasn't always Daniel. Uh, Can you tell us what it was? Sure. Well, it's uh, it's funny. One of the best uh, reviews I ever got for the book said um, the first word on Daniel Nairi's new book uh, cover is a lie. His name is not actually Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, yeah, true. Uh, my name is Khosro, which is what I was named um, at birth. But when we started to come to the West, we realized that the H sound and the R sound are pretty difficult, especially all at once. And so... Um, so that we were advised by our immigration officer that I would need an alias. And um, interestingly, the paperwork was kind of convoluted. So they were like, mm, you don't need to fill out any paperwork. Just tell everybody your name's Daniel. So to this day, Daniel is uh, officially an, an alias of mine and not uh, not a, you know, uh, on paper name. That said, of course, uh, all my credentials and things like that have the d initial in there so that i can make sense to people and uh, be daniel there you go in your book you talk about when that happened and essentially your mom just kind of started calling you daniel without actually talking to you about it again you talk about it in the book so people can read it but how did that feel to you how old were you uh what was that like I, I remember it extremely vividly uh, in the sense that we were in UAE. We were in a small apartment. I was um, watching. So the TV in the UAE pulls a lot of channels from Japan. So I was watching a uh, animated uh, action uh, cartoon of a little boy. And he's like running around with his robot. And all of a sudden my mom is making lunch and she just goes, Daniel, you know, it's time for lunch. And it's the same tone and cadence as I'm used to, but not the right name. And so I I was six years old. Uh, so I, I didn't even pay attention. Like I just, uh, I was watching the show and she just kept repeating herself until finally my sister goes, she's talking to you. <laughs> and I, uh, <laughs> so, uh, I turn around and she goes, and I don't know what my mother was thinking. I look back as an adult now. I think maybe she thought I was still 
quite young. We were still in transition in a lot of ways and was hoping for like a smooth, you know, uh, uh, you know, just like change of the sheets. <laughs> and that's not what happened. Um, so I, I didn't know what I, I, I think this like wave of confusion hit over me because she was looking at me, but saying the wrong name. And um, I took it very personally. I was a very sensitive little kid. Um, and so my eyes just started welling up and I start crying and there's no place to go in this like extremely small apartment. <laughs> so I ran uh, under the bed and wouldn't come out until we had a giant uh, conversation about it. And then then she explained everything and I I understood. And but it was it was one of those uh, misses on my mom's parents. How? I'll know, you know, you. Sometimes you'll try something and you'll be like, oh, that, that was not good. That she should have probably. So your sister is older. She's three years older. And so was her name changed also? No, she was lucky enough to have a name called, uh, her name was Dina. And so everybody can say that. No, okay. No, no issues. And your mom? Hers is Seema. And we were okay. close enough. Yeah, it was, it really is. I mean, it really is a challenging because um, the, you know, the American, the sort of the palate doesn't make those um, sounds. No. The, um, the, like the purring R is hard enough, but you know, lots of people have Spanish and Italian and you know, you have that in there, but that, uh, right, you know, right off the, I, I understand it conceptually, but um, mm -hmm. later in life, I was in university and some guy introduced himself, really cool guy. You know, I was like, I was admiring. He's just like, he was a friend and he goes, yeah, my name's Cuz. And I was like, oh, Cuz is such a cool name. It's like Shakespeare always says Cuz, you know, to like, among like the boys when Romeo's hanging out with Mercutio. And they'll call each other cuz. And I was like, what's that short for? And he goes, Oh, well, my, my full name is Hosro. And I was like, I could have been, I could have been cuz this whole time. <laughs> could have been cuz. I know. I was wondering how'd they get Daniel? I mean, I was thinking Ken or Cantor. I mean, <laughs> that's my generation. You're younger than I am, but yeah. Yeah. I think it was just my mom wanted a biblical name. So Khosrow is an interesting name. Uh, he's he's Khosrow II is a historically important king in uh, Persian history. He was he was a very uh, you know he was one he was one of those sort of as we you know like the rulers who build are always the ones we remember. So he built up a lot, but he also had this rug that was you know. Uh, the jewels were sort of woven into the rug and a lot of the mythology of the, you know, flying carpet comes right. from him. And, but so it's really interwoven into that history. And I think she, um, she was sort of all excited about her recent conversion and, and really thought Daniel was a good name and wanted that. And uh, so, you know, I think she just took the opportunity to choose again. <laughs> Shamgar is a biblical name. So you could have gotten Shamgar. So I guess Daniel's better. Could have been Shamgar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's United Arab Emirates. That was your first stop out of Iran. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Dubai is so UAE is like 12 principalities. And, um, you know, the, the ones people tend to know are Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Sharjah are sort of the three most prominent. So that's where we were. Mm -hmm. So maybe share with folks. Uh, the journey to Italy to the part of America that you landed in. Sure. So quickly. So when we left Iran, we left with my mother, my sister and I, my father chose to stay. And we were, um, 
my mother had committed a capital crime, which is to say she um, had committed uh, apostasy. Uh, she had converted from Islam to Christianity. Um, and what that meant fundamentally was that, uh, you know, she, they were after her. They, you know, the secret police were sort of, um, which is a group of people called the committee in Iran, were, um, you know, we will colloquially say she had a fatwa on her head, you know, around here, because we've heard of people like Salman Rushdie um, getting that sort of thing. You know, fatwa just means law. So, but, you know, in the West, we sort of think of it as the, the laws that apply specifically to, um, you know, condemning people, so to speak. And so uh, all that to say, we were on the run and we were refugees. We weren't immigrants, which means we were in danger. And so when we were in the UAE, the uh, the initial step was to establish um, a, you know, plea for asylum. It means you spend your time going from embassy to embassy um, asking for countries to let you in. Uh, you don't have paperwork. Like I didn't have a birth certificate because we had to leave too quickly and, um, and all our citizenship had been revoked. So a lot of the work that you're doing as a refugee is going to these embassies, filling out a lot of papers, obviously, but also interviewing and establishing who you are, right? Like quite literally saying like, this, it's this woman, she's got two children, that's them, you know? And, and so, um, when we were doing that, um, we, you know, we so we had heard that, you know, we were still a little too close to Iran. UAE is very close to Iran in terms of geographically and things like that. And so we um, we were still kind of in danger, and we we needed to go to the west. And so we were given um, refugee housing in um, the in Italy in a, a refugee camp on the outskirts of Rome, called in a town called Mentana. And there we were, uh, we were able to stay uh, for a little bit longer and until we were going to, you know, until hopefully uh, we would get asylum in the West. And at that point, you're sort of applying everywhere. So it could have been Australia or Canada or the UK. Um, we, we were knew it would be an English speaking country. Um, and at that time, this was the late 80s, uh, the United States had a program that you could uh, sponsor refugees, have them come live in your home. And there was just an incredibly generous and kind-hearted couple by the name of Jim and Jean Dawson in Edmond, Oklahoma. And they uh, they sponsored us, um, but they, we didn't know one another. We didn't know who Jim and Jean were. and But they were waiting for us at the airport when we landed in Oklahoma and, uh, you know. And you had learned some English by watching television when you were in Italy, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, TV helps, but uh, actually it was sort of also homeschooling. We were sort of, we were able to get the workbooks for the grades we were in. I was in first and my sister was in uh, fourth and we both were going through these workbooks and, and trying to learn. I give Richard Scary a lot of credit. Do you remember hey. him? He did those, what do people do all day books? Yeah. <laughs> so, I love those books. Uh, but yeah, so it, it was a, definitely a book English. Um, so we, you know, we didn't know too many idioms. We were, you know, we would, I joke in the book, we, I would say things like parlor instead of living room and people were right. confused. <laughs> um, so a lot of, a lot of old, and it's just, some of those books were English, English. So, right. you know, in the gym, they lift barbells. <laughs> be like, right. It makes you sound like a weirdo. Um, so, yeah. It was interesting to see the second, third grade, all of the sort of early elementary school um, 
report cards because I was just failing English. And all that. And so to have ended up in any kind of English major background or or job is really funny to me. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that actually goes well into my next question. This book is written in a very interesting way. It folds in and out of many stories all at once. Um, but you also mostly write it from the perspective of your fifth grade self instead of your adult self. What was that decision? Why did you make that decision? Um, was that something you did early on or did you start writing the story and then say, hey, you know, I should write this from an earlier perspective? Like, how did that go? No, it was, it was definitely a pivot, actually six years into the production of it, into the, into the writing of it. So I, I spent six years kind of spinning my wheels um, because initially it was going to be an adult novel, you know, something, I mean, it was a memoir. I mean, by definition, it's a memoir. And when you're a, um, I don't know, I was 28. So when you're a 28 year old sitting down with your, and you're telling, you know, some friends in the publishing industry, they're like, what are you working on? And you're like, I'm working on a memoir. People are like, you sure you're 28 uh, pretty early for those. <laughs> And, and I, you know, and so, but obviously it was front loaded um, and it wasn't really my memoir in a lot of ways. It was the story of my family. And so I started, you know, I was reading a lot of books that I adored at the time, uh, histories of families, things like hundred years of solitude um, and some of the early stuff by Calvino where he's writing his histories. And I just adored that stuff, but I mean, heaven help you, uh, you know, the, the negative reaction you get when you're a 28 year old saying you um, you're writing a memoir is not nearly as bad as when you say, I want to rewrite a hundred years of solitude. <laughs> 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 Keep both those close to the vest. Um, and I was working on it. And the reality was it was that my 28 year old self had been lucky enough to um, process a lot of these things. I, you know, I mean, the work of adulthood is to take some of the chaotic, what we would in modern clinical parlance call trauma and work through it. If you're not, then you're fundamentally recreating these things, right? And so um, so I was lucky enough to have sort of wanted a healthy relationship with a young woman and wanted to think about, hey, what are ways that my conflict resolution skills and these things aren't really great? Why, you know? And so I, in some ways that remove of having not been as, you know, bothered by some of these things like I'm, I'm not really bothered by my parents decisions um anymore but as a kid I didn't understand them and they were gigantic and they were like boulders coming down Olympus crushing my little villages like I I didn't understand and so I, you know as an adult literary novel there were two elements that were just broken about it one was as an adult, we all understand the context of these histories. So there were entire chapters that discussed the Islamic revolution. And because adults want to know about it, adults want to understand all the nuance of the dynamics at play. Um, so there was a lot of explication of that stuff. Um, and the second was that what there wasn't um, a sort of an emotional center or core, the sort of roiling heartbeat of this little boy. Um, so I was sitting with a friend, she's an editor in a cup, cupcake shop in the West Village, uh, called Sweet and Vicious, which was great right. because it, my friend, um, my friend ended up, uh, kind of being both sweet and vicious. She, <laughs> I was telling her, I was complaining and she was sweetly listening and all the stuff I just told you, I was whining about it. And she just goes, well, 
Have you ever thought about just making it a 12 year old? Cause that's where all the emotional resonance is. And you can just tell it when it happened, all the events happened then. Right. And I said, um, no, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went back and started rewriting and it took another five, six years actually. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I finally, it, and, it, and it clicked immediately. I understood the voice. I understood you know, that I don't need to deliver the paperwork, which mm -hmm. is kind of what you end up having to do. I just need to deliver, this is his experience. You don't have to know a dissertation on the Islamic Republic of Iran. You just, what you need is this person's story. For me, I was a kid in elementary school who didn't fit in. And I don't know, just some of the things that the narrator says that are so, so internal, like you're, you don't actually say these things to your friends, to the mean kids that are in your class, telling them that they're stupid and, and whatever for picking on you because they don't understand is, I was just like, yeah, yep, that's exactly it. That's amazing. Oh, I mean, I'm 63. I haven't been there in a long time. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> He's writing like I would write yeah. I think, as a 12, 13 year old. And it was just flooring me. And, you know, as I'm saying this, I want to make sure that everybody hearing knows that this is a very adult book. This is not a young adult book. It's for everybody. But but it was just fascinating for me. All of that kind of took yeah. me back to that time in my own life, even though we were coming from some very different cultures there so honestly and i will probably <laughs> cut this out but my favorite one is when um you're trying to explain toilets and um because you're in the states and toilets are very different here than they are uh in iran and um you're just apparently the kids were considered you to be like an unwashed human being and then you in your mind go on this tirade about how using toilet paper is like smearing peanut butter on your skin and that's disgusting. And so you're probably the, the most washed person because like yours were more like bidets and whatever. And it's, it was just so funny. Um, <laughs> Susan, leave that in there. I'm, <laughs> I'm serious. Leave that in there because that to me was that 13 year old boy, the way you explained it was this just makes all the sense in the world. What? Yeah. As a guy who traveled over to Central Asia and the Middle East, you know, I had the complete opposite experience right. of like, uh, what am I supposed to do here when you go? In? Yeah, it's it's uh, quite challenging. Uh, you know, but that became the project. Everything is different. Like like this happens in sci for sci-fi writers um, when when a sci-fi writer is um, they have this added challenge in the world build, which is if they say um, the hero, the hero like got out of the car and she like pulled out her gun. And you're like, woo, if this was a detective story, you don't need to worry about describing the car and the gun. We all know what they look like in a, in a, but in a world build on a sci-fi, like not only do you have to explain the car, like in the hover car, you also yeah. have to describe like quite literally the materials. It's like, mm, so the door slides up or does the door hinge out? Like these are really nuanced differences that help you understand I'm on Mars with a flying car and a laser pistol, not, you know, in LA in the forties. And so yeah. 
that I really felt like I, I was having to explain how, how toilets work. And so there was these, that we had such fundamental differences that the project became, how do we build a universal experience of an outsider, you know, an outsider 13 year old that, you know, God willing, uh, you know, any of us can sit and go, yeah, I was that. And I, I have a lot of people, when people say that, they sort of often go, I, you know, I know I didn't, I wasn't a refugee. And I'm like, yeah, you were, we were all kind of outsiders. It's fine. Um, as long, you know, we had similar experiences, the props and the materials and some of those dynamics were clearly different in our mm -hmm. lives. Um, but those, the sort of, that was the goal once it became a young narrator is to manage as much universality as possible. Um, in this book, with the ever looping back structure, um, partly what I found so fascinating was you helped teach us about the ideas of myth, legend, and story, and then how they relate to memory and what we call truth. Um, so for this recording, I was wondering if you could tell us the difference between myth, legend, and story and how they relate to memory and truth. Yeah, so, you know, he's, this is the kid who is explaining himself as quickly as he can. It's, there's the, as you alluded to it, there's no chapters um, in the book because he's frankly just not stopping for breath. Um, and so he's, it's a very much a, um, stream of his consciousness as fast as he can. And one of the things he's obsessed with is as it opens, it says, you know, all Persians are liars and lying is a sin. Um, and what he's sort of contending with is this, uh, that sort of accusation that he perceives. Um, and, and so he starts as a little kid to consider these ideas. This is how, I mean, how else does a 12 year old come to these thoughts of, okay, well then I'm, I'm not a liar, but also, my memories are super foggy <laughs> and, and also, you know, and also I'm starting to realize when I describe something, someone else will pipe up and object to that memory. And yet I'm certain of this one, you know? And so, and so he becomes a little bit of an obsessive about the nature of storytelling and the nature of mythology and legends. And he, the, I think the sentence I like related to that. He says, you know, the, the boundary between these countries is just 10 feet of fog. Um, so there isn't, you know, he doesn't perceive a massive difference between these things. And in fact, although there is distinctions and I'll get there, but um, but really what he's starting to realize is maybe memories are stories we tell ourselves. And maybe some of these stories shift in order to affect the explanations we need. Um, and so he starts to realize, well, mythology is the, is the story of explanation. It's mythology is to make sense of the world, is to make sense. And, and traditionally, we know this, right? Mythology was, you know, wh why is the world as it is? Well, you know, Zeus decided it this way. And Persephone is sad sometimes. And so that's why winter happens. Um, mm -hmm. These are fundamentally explanations of the world. And so he goes, okay, so mythology is an explanation. Um and then he starts to go, okay, so then what is a legend, a legend of his family? And he starts to go, well, legend is a more personal idea. A legend is actually how, how we start to not explain why the world is, but explaining how we should live in it. You know, there's a moment I didn't write because a 12-year-old Persian boy wouldn't have access to it. But there's a, um, there's a moment in sort of the Benelux region, there were these like kings, and you look at the history of them going back, and Newt was one of them, right? And he's this king. And where it's history, it's really straightforward. It's like, well, this guy did this, 
married this person, got into this war. And you're like, okay, cool. But right around him, you get to this guy and all of a sudden it's like a completely inhuman magical thing he can do. Like he can like stop the waves of the ocean or, you know, there's, there's things like this. And you start to realize that if you go back far enough in history, you're starting to get legends, right? So no his king in Persian history had a flying carpet, most likely, but that the history starts to mesh with legend. And why did we do that? Why did we, why did we start filling in the facts um, with what we now describe as legends? And the answer is because we were trying to explain to each other how to be moral and how to be heroic and how to be um, successful, how to be good. Um, and, uh, and so he starts to go, okay, so mythology is the explanation of how the world works um, legend is the is the exploration of how the heart works, and then you get story, which is how you're situating yourself in uh, and among the people you live with. Um, you're telling yourself your own little story about who you are. I'm well. I'm not this person in my friend group, but I'm this person, and that's valuable. And that exploration is the emotional kind of arc of the book. He's, um, I'll give you a quick example. One of the sort of, in this genre, <clears throat> which my friends and I jokingly call like tales of immigrant woe, um, <laughs> there's a little bit of a, a theme I don't love. And it's this idea of like old world good, new world bad, right? So like all the stuff in my town in Thailand was so great. The fruit was the freshest and the community was the closest and all this stuff. And then, but now I'm here in Tennessee and everybody's mean to me and I don't like the food. And you can see that in the early parts of the book, he's falling straight into this trope. Like He doesn't like the food and that's fine. You shouldn't like the food. If I drop you into any place that isn't your mom's house, you're probably not going to like the food as much. Um, and, and he really is romanticizing the past. That is a fair, fair um, reaction, I think, to any immigrant. That is a thread and a justified one. But I, I think if we take two steps further, we start to get into some really interesting territory um, and a more even-handed territory. There are refugees coming out of Ukraine. There are refugees, uh, you know, fleeing Central America. What would you want to share with someone about greeting a refugee, welcoming a refugee? Um, that's well, a big question, but, but um, <laughs> yeah, but but you know, I think there's a few touch points of kind of related to what I what I was saying in the sense that you are meeting someone grieving the loss of like nearly everything. Um, if you don't see it on them, they probably don't own it. Um, and so uh, in a lot of ways, I, I think the interpretation of that initial reaction of like, I will be overjoyed in a few years for having landed here. And I like I Fourth of July just happened. I will be crying when the fireworks are happening, singing to Alabama. Right. Like that's what's going to happen. Um, but. I won't necessarily be that in the first six months. Um, and part of that is because we're st you're still in the grieving process of everything you miss. And you're still in the extremely strange interaction of it's weird. The first time you eat peanut butter, <laughs> As an adult, it's weird. Um, these foods are odd and they're just as odd as if somebody goes and visits those other countries that they come from. Right. And 
So those are not indictments necessarily. Those are not thanklessness. I think what they are, are um, sort of this mixture of disbelief that you're still safe and, you know, secure in the United States, uh, if they're coming here, for example, and, and, uh, you know, and sort of a wariness of, okay, so how many meals do you eat without rice? Because meals are only eaten with rice where I'm from, right? So you're just kind of, kind of being like, okay, bread is the starch that sort of works here. So cool. I can eat a sandwich and some chips and that's a real meal. Um, that's That takes a minute to get used to. It really does. Um, I, just as it would if some, you know, a kid went to Iran and every, uh, you know, school lunch, the teacher is pulling out a pot of rice, right? Or whatever. It's just like, it's uh, it's weird. So um, I think I think the real the way to greet, I think, is to just I think it's just an awareness. I think people will often um, and this happens, you know, when you volunteer in soup kitchens, too, when you're working with, you know, sort of people out in the margins, they're sort of expecting the kind of interaction they're going to have with maybe their neighbors. Like if I went over to my neighbor's house and said, hey, I got you some soup, they'd, they'd be like, thank you. This is so kind of you. I, you know, and they give you this feedback that you that's logical and it makes sense. It doesn't quite happen that way if you've ever worked in a soup kitchen and that's fine. The first thing we tell people when they volunteer there is, Hey, don't worry about it. Don't expect that. It's sort of a different headspace and you're working for someone else. It's you don't need that feedback necessarily. And so I'm not trying to paint this as if they're going to come and be like wailing and sad and awful. Some people, you know, get to do that. I'm just saying that, you know, the interaction of, of that amount of loss and this amount of unfamiliarity can create in the in the initial part um, just a, a, a different cocktail of emotions than you might sort of expect logically. Um, it's not the same as, you know, when you go to Paris and you're like ready to pull your camera out and go, I love this, here to try new things. <laughs> it's, like, it's not quite the same. So that I think is the initial thing. But you'd be, I think the other thing is knowing that, you know, they're really hoping to make themselves useful. I think of that word all the time. It's uh, in the sense of wanting to, to, you know, if they're young, learn and build a skill and apply it. And if they're older, they've probably had a job, a legit job that they'd love to practice if they could. And, you know, so I guess what I'm trying to say is like, they, they're not coming in the takers mentality. I think there really is um, mm. a desire, especially with the dream of giving and, and exchanging and, and really sort of um, offering what gifts they have. And sometimes they have amazing uh, gifts, just like, so I think, I think there's just a massive amount of benefit to be gained, but they are in, it's undeniable that they are in compromised circumstances at first. Um, so, you know, the greatest doctor in uh, America right now plopped into Somalia with none of his tools. It's going to take some rebuilding before he can build up his practice again. Um, and that's, that's okay. Someday Somalia is going to have the best doctor on the planet if that was the case. Um, so, you know, those kinds of, that kind of rebuilding phase um, is Israel and that's what they're working on. Right, right. Um, and don't get me wrong, there is no monopoly of knuckleheads anywhere, any place. So within any population, yeah, they'll, they'll be that too. But it's, I now, think it's the same how old are you? I I'm about to turn 40 in a couple of days. Oh, I, okay. I thought you were younger 30s. But um, yeah. I mean, I use the term knucklehead all the time. And I don't hear people your age using that term. So um, 
I, I don't <laughs> know my old you... football coach. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's a very nice word. Uh, I try to soften it, you know. I, I well, I, in general, I think I actually have a long uh, bit about just like curse words and ex and and expletives. I love expletives and the way people use them. So I used to I, in Oklahoma. I knew this football player. I loved him so much, and he anytime he would make a mistake or he'd get really frustrated, he'd go horses. <laughs> And he would just he would just scream. And the other one was Kansas City. And I'd be like, uh, hey, Kansas City <laughs> does not appreciate being your like epithet, man. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, those were his two. And he just loved them. And I and I find them so creative and interesting. And uh, yeah. so, you know, nice. so you guys had to come in because of your mom's conversion. That actually makes me wonder how did that affect your faith? I mean, I know you were a pretty small child when you moved here. Faith for children is an interesting thing. Your perspective on God is an interesting thing. It sometimes does land in the realm of myths and legends. And like my son is, Mm -hmm. you know, he learns about saints and the Bible at the same time that he's learning about like, Roman mythology and Greek mythology and and all. And it honestly sounds very similar sometimes. And so I'm curious how the whole experience of having to leave because of religious reasons affected your perspective on God. I think, I think the best way to put it is I think a child that young dealing with concepts that big approaches them or if they're me approaches them let me not be general uh i approach them from the perspective of emotional coherence i think i think god and christianity is the most emotionally coherent response and specifically explanation of what's happening (laughs) and so i'll explain what i mean when we were in iran my mom had everything she with the minute we land in uae she's like disinherited she has no money she has no practice she's not a doctor her degrees get erased um and she you know so by the time we land in oklahoma she looks like a single mom with two kids under 10 who are going to be a ward of the state and poor forever and so she did not leave logically and this is where i get to the emotional coherence it is not coherent for this woman to give up millions and millions of dollars like actual dollars in straight up money and land and you know orchards and houses like you don't do that you know it's not the image we get post islamic republic is like holding her babies having to wear a whole full chador and like running away from a bunch of like uh you know uh misogyny and awful you know and don't get me wrong all of that exists i'm saying my mom's experience was one of a lot of uh, privileges. And, you know, she was from a family where her father was a governor. She's got her husband who's a dentist. She has her own practice. She is beloved and, you know, invited to all the best parties, so to speak, and, and having a good time. And, um, so I think, I think I came at her faith as this like giant, almost like ununderstandable center to the reasoning for why bonkers things were happening. And you're like, what's up with this? And so you start to ask those questions and you really do get to a very similar theological perspective that people will have with Jesus, right? Which is, you you know, if you take them at their word 
um, this person is either a lunatic who thinks he's the son of God and will save you exclusively. Mm -hmm. um, so total maniac, like not like good teacher maniac yeah. <laughs> or he's who he says he is. Right. And this is called the mad Christ doctrine. Right. And so my mom is very similar to me, I, you know, not in, not in degree, but in kind in the sense that you, you go, Hey, this lady made this trade. That's you can't, that can't be denied. She's not nuts. I don't think. Um, and I've seen her at her worst and she's not an idiot because she's got a lot of doctors. Right? So you're like, well, then somewhere along the way, she's made a valuation that we don't understand. That has, there is an X factor here. And that valuation is the valuation that a kid starts to want to explore. Cause you're like, really, really better than like thousands of acres of, pomegranate trees really and so that question that tool of like how do you create this valuation mom was what sort of drove me to my faith so i'm curious if you feel like your persian background informs your Christian faith very much? And if so, how? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Off the top of my head, if I had to, if I had to address it, I, I am always, as I grow older, I, you know, so my wife is from Connecticut. She's an American um, with, from like European background, right? So, but you know, like American uh, from generations back. And so it's really funny when we were 18 and it was just like, we were just dating and you we were like, Oh, there's no difference. And it was like eight to, from eight to 18. I was in Oklahoma. So like the, we would joke that it's like, well, there's bigger differences between an Oklahoman and a Connecticut than between, you know, than an Iranian. And, and, it, and I, and I think I look back and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, not really <laughs> that, that, that as I grow older, I start to realize, especially like around having kids and things like that, having a kid, I have one son. Um, how much of my Iranianness uh, is is sticks so sticks around and and is very much a part of it. You know, I, I, at eighteen, you're kind of I'm maybe not as aware of all the tradition and thought you know patterns that maybe um, later you're kind of like, oh, I see. So, so the short answer is, I'm starting to realize more and more how much it does has affected it in relation to my faith. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think Islam is a um, a religion that makes no bones about a particular element of the relationship with with God, which is um, he's great and you're not. Um, and so like the, the Islam means submission, the submission. And I've always liked that about that term. I think the understanding of you do not walk through this door, the door being Islam, unless you understand one fundamental relationship you have with God, that is submission. And I think we, you know, I think uh, in the West um, that sometimes gets softened. We're kind of like, you know, a partnership of not quite equals. Mm. <laughs> it's like, how is the phrase dynamic? Sometimes I perceive in Christianity, it's like, oh, well, he's a good partner to have. He's definitely got a lot of services I'm willing to, uh, you know, onboard into my company here. And, um, <laughs> you know, whenever trouble strikes, I'm going to call him up and say, you know, hey, uh, we're going to need some help here. And, and, you know, and he's really big and really like pretty. And he's like the stars. Stars are pretty. And you're like, okay, that's great. 
but my i think my persian and i think specifically the islamic influence is like yo that is the quaking hurricane that is that is the a very different relationship and so i, th- I think a very healthy fear yeah. um is is uh good <laughs> so yeah. i think that definitely that dynamic a lot of people are like um think i'm calvinist because i just have a very particular because <laughs> i'm like yo th- that dude is good but he's dangerous yeah. <laughs> so, let's, get it, let's let's be clear uh so i think i think that i think for example when i was a kid and i would be laying in bed and i would i would be told you should pray um i sleep on my back and, and I got really nervous about that. I was like, I think I'm insulting like the you God, like the universe to be. And so I would I would always like roll over and pray like facing my pillow. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's funny. You know, my, I saw this to my wife once and she was just like, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's like, like, I don't know if that's absolutely required. Like, I don't think he's gonna smite a child if they're laying on their back. But to me, it was it was a, it was a symbol of like respect, like whatever symbol there is, you know, and your symbols are going to be different than my symbols necessarily, but you have internal coherent symbols for respect and it's up to you, buddy, (laughs) to figure out what it is and whatever is maximal respect. If you believe there is such a thing as, as this sort of being, that would be the being to afford them to. Um, So I think those are probably my two best examples, but yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you are currently with your family leading leading a nomadic life, uh, touring around the U.S. in an in an RV or what is it? Yeah, yeah. it's a little it's an airstream. It's those ones that look like hot potatoes with nice. oil wrapped around them. Yeah. I assume. Are you still writing now, or are you editing, or what are you doing for work on the road? Oh, writing full time as much as I can. And uh, it's so my next one's actually coming out soon. It's, in some ways, it's like the first one was this thought around my mother and this next one is um in some ways me focusing on the personality of my dad so it's it's set in this 11th century silk road uh adventure about this um portly huckster merchant who goes from village to village swindling people and Mm -hmm. uh, and so at the opening he hears that those villagers got pretty upset and they each hired a different assassin to come and kill him and so the story sort of centers around this young boy who's a monk that the merchant had saved and uh, and the, the boy who sort of sees him. It's, the dynamic is very much, he's a, he's a very serious young man and he perceives this lying, laughing, hedonist sort of merchant Samir as, um, as kind of an unserious individual. And, but he has to save his life over and over again from all these assassins. And wow. slowly they start to make a bit of a family for oh, each other. And, gosh. Um, yeah, do you know when it's coming out? Yeah, uh, March of 2023. Okay. Oh, wow. Great. So, yeah, that's exciting. I will, oh, I'll keep my eyes open for it. I am hoping to brick house, straw house, that so one's in straw my... house, wood house, brick house below. There you go. That one's in my queue <laughs> right now. I'm really looking forward to reading that next. So I will, I'll, I will keep my eye on you and I <laughs> appreciate your writing. Thank you so much for spending <laughs> some time with us. You thank have you. a great day and thank you to your family for sharing their time uh, so that you could spend time with us. Appreciate that. 
Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well. Thank you.